about to enter a world of pain, suffering, and laughter. That right. Yeah. Dead on Mario Worst gig ever here. What's up? This is Jeff Garlock. Mike Pace here. We are bringing it to you on Rick Rick Record. (laughs) (laughs) Record. Here we go. Fantastic episode today. We have Andy Chernoff, I could, uh, the legendary, we can use the word legendary. Yes, I think this might be the first legendary we have. Well, you know, everybody's a legendary. Except for you. Except for me. That's right. <laughs> Everybody else is one level below legend. Yeah. Including John Legend. <laughs> yeah. Fuck that guy. Uh, I'm so glad week, we have a John Legend episode. And he should, yeah, wait, we're going to have to bring that one out of the vault. So that one de- was deemed unworthy to <laughs> go out. It didn't seem that, like it no, went too no. well, but... Uh, but Enough yeah. of this bullshit. Andy Sharonoff of the legendary New York kind of proto-punk band, The Dictators, yeah. was with us in the studio. He told, I mean, these, these stories growing up in Queens and how Queens is essentially the epicenter of rock and roll and getting kicked off a, a tour opening for Rush and all this I, amazing stuff. I feel stories. like we legitimately documented a piece of rock history yeah, that th- doesn't get documented this enough. Is, this is an episode to listen to and to take notes. Get your notebook out and take yeah. some notes. Take some notes because this one ain't going to be available in Cliff Notes. <laughs> Except for the, the John Legend one, well, yes. it will be. So that, well, we do the Cliff Burton episode. Yes, that'll, that's, Cliff that's, that's, so I, I, we're gonna we're gonna let Andy just take it away because it's just, it was just a great conversation. But I want to. Uh, he tells a story about encountering anti-Semitism in Germany that's that I thought was really interesting, and I felt like I I encountered something like that in Louisiana. And what? And I feel like you guys, aka. For the listener, would <laughs> would be interested in this. So my band Oxford Collapse, when we would play in Louisiana, which we did a few times. Oh my my dog is licking my pants because there's <laughs> there's, some, there's some dried food adding like essentially glued to my pant leg to this and my story of anti-Semitism is, is between my legs licking this. I think it's dried tomato paste. Fantastic. <laughs> so whenever we would play Louisiana, we would stay with this guy who was a friend of a friend, and he was a he was a funny guy. He he lived in New York for. A little while he was a professional mm-hmm. and but he was originally from down south sure. in louisiana and we went down there and we played and and we stayed with him and he took us out for crawfish and i wasn't a huge louisiana f- staple yeah but i not not a huge fan you know, like i'll try anything once right. ladies <laughs> but crawfish was not i was not digging it uh-huh. and he said to me he said it's okay mike i think we can find something kosher for you. <laughs> I kind of I kind of chuckled at it, let it slide, right. but it lodged a formal complaint in the back right. of my mind. And then after we left and we were driving to the next show, I had said to the other guys in the band like it was a little kind of weird that he, this guy, not not a not a, a Jewish man himself, right. making this kind of offhand comment, and then ah, no, no, he's cool, he's cool, he's fine. <laughs> so fast forward now, maybe a year. We go back. Uh-huh. To, we're going back through Louisiana, and he has invited us to his house. He's preparing jambalaya for us. <laughs> and Another Louisiana staple. Exactly. <laughs> we go to his place, a gorgeous house, antebellum south. And I said to the guys in the band, I said, I really hope he doesn't make another anti-Semitic. <laughs> like, oh, don't worry. That was a joke. That was a joke. Blah, blah, blah. So we go in, gorgeous spread waiting for us. We start serving the jambalaya. He uh, sits down at the table, and within, I'd say, five minutes, he says to me, So, Mike, where do you guys get the Jew van? <laughs> Referring to our minivan that we were touring. <laughs> I, I drop my spoon in my soup cup, bowl probably. In disgust or shock? I, in, no, in shock. And yes. I said, what? <laughs> and he said, Oh, you know, the, that minivan. It's like all the Hasids in Williamsburg have those. And 
I mean, valid point, but. Um, <laughs> and it really took me, threw me for a loop. Right. It was, I was not well with the comments. I think I probably ate my food, left, called my, my then girlfriend, now wife, right. to tell her I was staying with, you know, the Hitler youth. And then later and, in the conversation, he just, in a moment of silence, just said, Jew. <laughs> I, I wish he was he was that that polite. <laughs> and then uh, you go now I know what I'm no, dealing with. No, so then later, so the other guys in the band realized that I was offended by this. <laughs> and at our show that night, which as a, as a side note, no one really came to. <laughs> adding insult injury, both Adam and Dan from Oxford Collapse went up to our host at different times and said, you know, like what you said to Mike wasn't cool, and right. you should, you know. And he wound up apologizing to me. And then SIG healing. And then oh, perfect. Now. It all worked out. So yeah. anyway, <laughs> anti-Semitism alive and well. It, it is not dead, apparently, when you're on tour. But, guys, if you want the opposite of anti-Semitism, <laughs> you'll subscribe to the Worst Gig Ever podcast. You'll like us on Facebook, worstgigeverpodcast.tumblr.com. Or Send on us iTunes. emails at worstgigever at gmail.com. Hate mail. Hate mail. <laughs> you know, don't, you can ask me about the Jew van. We'll have you on the show at this point. I think. Uh, like us on iTunes. Give us some ratings. Send yeah. us some suggestions. And love listening to this episode. Yeah, it's great. So without any further ado, here's Andy Sharonoff of The Dictators and uh, A Whole lot of Life. <laughs> Worst gig ever. I've been in the music business for a long time, so i played a lot of gigs. Right. My first worst gig was in uh, 1974, and this is before, there's no Ramones, there's no CBGBs, there's no MTV, there's no internet. Uh, if you want to get somebody to see you, you had to be playing gigs out there on tour out in America. Right. And we got signed to, uh, to Epic Records before we played a gig, some fluke of nature, before we even knew how to play our instruments. And our manager who also managed the Blue Oyster Cult, this guy Sandy Perlman and Murray Krugman, got us a gig down at Virginia Tech, mm-hmm. which is down in Blacksburg, Tennessee. Now, Blacksburg, Tennessee is about in the area where uh, Jerry Falwell's right. church right. is. So this is the center of evangelical right. Christianity. Not the most progressive area of yeah. the world. This is... <laughs> Beginning of the Bible Belt. <laughs> yes. This is the buckle, the buckle on the Bible belt. <laughs> this is um, uh, Jesus coming back, and right. uh, you, you know all these. If you got to be, if you want to be saved, you're going to fly up. I'm into the rapture. I don't know if you know that. I have. Yeah. Okay. Um, this is. They don't know what a Jew is. Right. <laughs> my band, we're all, we're all New York Jews. Right. We're all wise guy, uh-huh. sarcastic New York Jews. Uh-huh. And we got a gig opening up for this guy, Billy Preston. You know who Billy Preston is? Uh, yep. Uh, keyboardist, right? Keyboards. Nothing great, from great nothing keyboard. No. Play with Beatles, uh, play with the Stones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in the early 70s, they had a bunch of hit singles. Called uh, um, I don't remember this. The, What's the hit? The nothing from nothing. I got that right. Right. That's, yeah. one, that's one of the hits. Right. Billy he was all over the, the radio. Record. Yeah. Somehow, we got a gig opening up for Billy Preston <laughs> at Virginia Tech in Blacksburg, Tennessee. Uh, Virginia, Virginia. Virginia. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, now Billy Preston is this gay. Uh, he wears a big Afro wig. It was like huge. Like <laughs> it was foot. a wig. Yeah, he wore a wig. <laughs> and he was gay. Scoop. And he, he used to do the dosi do the jig around the stage. Right. Nothing from nothing. <laughs> and this is like our second or third gig. And Dictator's my first band ever. So we I've never we've never been on stage. Right. And we're opening up for this <laughs> for Billy Preston. And we have songs like Master Race Rock, you know. Right. You know, we have lyrics like um, my favorite part of growing up is when I'm sick and throwing up. <laughs> it's the dues you got to pay for eating burgers every day. <laughs> These people, they think Jews have horns. Right. So, you know, that's the thing. We're open for Billy Preston. Did we get booed? I, I think they were, they were, 
too stunned <laughs> right. to even boo us because <laughs> they they've never heard this kind of a sound right. coming off of a stage before. Right. So uh, that's my first worst gig, and that was your second show for the very t- early shows? on, second or yeah. third time ever. That's on insane. stage. Yeah, it was pretty pretty crazy. <laughs> That's crazy. Actually, the most amazing thing was uh, we couldn't understand why they didn't like us. Right. We thought we are so cool. How old from were you at this point? You're from New York. Two, Twenty years old. Right. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> right. Why wouldn't they love us down here? <laughs> but the idea that you can get a first of all, how you hook up with with Sandy Perlman without ever playing live and just ba- like was it based on. Demos that you guys had recorded no. that you wind up your second show playing opening for. This is know, another story. Like, I started a magazine when I was in college called Teenage Wasteland Gazette, mm-hmm. and it was basically a uh, uh, sarcastic. It was all about rock and roll, but nothing was true. Right. I'd make fake concerts. I would <laughs> write about sex and drugs and girls and cars and <laughs> things, and I actually got. Like Lester Bangs to write for me. I don't know if you guys know Lester Bangs. Cheshire's own from my hometown. <laughs> wait, wait. Not Lester that? Bangs. Oh, no, no, sorry. Legs McNeil, I was thinking of. Oh, you're from Cheshire. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. from Cheshire. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Lester Bangs was from right. uh, El Cajon in uh, near San Diego. Yes. And the movie, what's the movie Almost that was about Famous. Him? Almost Famous. Was, yeah. Yes. He was a character in that movie. He was actually a brilliant writer who was a bit of a mess up and fuck up. And he died very young. He was about 30 years old when he died. I got Richard Meltzer to write for us. So we knew Richard Meltzer. Uh And Richard Meltzer's best friend, Richard Meltzer, another writer. Yeah. I'm getting ahead of myself here. (laughs) The first crew of rock writers ever was involved in this magazine called Craw Daddy Magazine Mm -hmm. in the 60s. It was John Landau, who became Bruce Springsteen's manager. This guy, Paul Williams was the editor. He now has Alzheimer's, a little bit out of it. Uh, Richard Meltzer, Greil Marcus, who's now a very famous writer. Yeah. Um, I mean, who else was there? Well, Sandy Perlman. Mm-hmm. And they used to write these very intellectual articles about rock and roll. They were all into philosophy, and they were into very kind of heady stuff. So we met Perlman through Meltzer. He came up. I was going to school in New Paltz, upstate mm-hmm. New York. And we had rented this farmhouse for $150 a month. And we just played every day rock right. and roll. Uh, had parties there. Great time. Uh-huh. And Sandy Proma came up. So I said, yeah, I'll get you a deal. Wow. And he got us a deal. Like, you know, <laughs> six months after I bought my bass guitar. Right. <laughs> so uh, that's how I met Sandy Proman. Uh-huh. And Sandy Proman went on to, he was mad at political, produced The Clash. Right. Um, Dream Syndicate. Did a U2, one, one song with U2. Um, a bunch of other bands, but I don't think he's not producing anymore. Right. Uh, so that's great. So wait, so you, so you were, the, the Dictators were started out of going to college, uh, when you're at, uh, at New Paltz? Yeah, I was going to, to college in, in, uh, New Paltz. Mm-hmm. And Ross, the boss, mm-hmm. who eventually formed Man of War, I know you want to talk about yes. Man of War. <laughs> he was playing in a band. He was playing in a band called Total Crud. Uh-huh. And they Good lived name. in, they all lived That's in a, a really big house. It was like a animal house kind right. of thing. It was called the out of it house. Uh-huh. And they had parties in there. thing. It was, you know, crazy sex and drugs and, you know. Uh, so I, Ross decided to quit the band. He, mm-hmm. and we used to, I used to play him like MC5 records right. and Stooges records. And this is back in the, in the early seventies when these bands were not really very popular. Sure. So he decided to quit the band and, um, we decided to form a band. We divided Scott Kepner mm-hmm. to come on. He, he and he was, you know, he was ready to drop out of his freshman year of right. Hunter College or whatever <laughs> school he was. He, he had no interest in going to school. Fuck this! I'm not uh, this is before Manitoba was right. in the band. So uh, we lived together and went through a succession of drummers, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, miraculously, we got a deal. Literally, maybe six months after we formed. That's crazy. After, we couldn't play. Right. Um, right after I bought my bass, it was, uh, but we, you know, the thing is we were, we were doing something a little bit different mm-hmm. than what was the music at the time. Sure. You know, we were doing garagey punk rock and, uh, there was no punk rock at the time. Yeah. You know? 
It was attitude, a lot of attitude, a lot of lyrics about cars and girls and wise guys, sarcastic. You know, if I, you know, I would, I would describe it as the Beastie Boys Mm -hmm. without hip hop. Right. So, um, it was all about just having a good time. And, um, so we got a deal. And I was going, we're going to another direction. What were we going to talk about? Cause I, we went off on a tangent. Well, just, well, just I, I think bringing it back, the idea that you guys get signed at a time when there really is no independent record label infrastructure right. at all. So, so to get a record deal, I mean, yeah. I, 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 you know, classic rock is classic for a reason. Sure. Not everybody got to, got to right. put out a record and, and needless to say on, on a major label. So the fact that you guys were able to do that, Really, you know, without having proven yourselves in any kind of live capacity or as a functional unit is fascinating. Sure. To me. And then the fact Not, that- We hadn't even played a gig. Yes. Right. And let me Which tell you something insane. else. That- we thought we deserved it. Well, so that's what I was actually wondering. Yeah, like when it, when you got signed, were you just like, of course. Were you just kind of like, did you have that attitude like yeah. going into the band, starting yeah. the band? Yeah. Every band. Isn't every band like that? But I mean, also, but also at the time, I'm assuming that there were just fewer bands and fewer, and people right. actually, you know, having their own kind of garage band or whatever. No, whatever. There, were, there were no bands. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is early 70s. Let's say rock and roll began in 1955. Right. We formed in 1973. So rock and roll was still a baby. Sure. It was easy to be innovative at that time. There was no CBGBs. There was no place to play in New York. There was one – actually, the New York Dolls were popular in New York at the time. Mm-hmm. And there was two clubs. Maybe one or two other was like once in a while have bands. It was the uh, uh, Coventry in Queens. Mm-hmm. Where was that? That Queens? was on Queens Boulevard. It was a uh, – down the block from a strip club was a mafia oriented. Mm-hmm. What neighborhood would that be? Sunnyside. Okay. About 48th Street mm-hmm. on Queens Boulevard. And that was like the glam rock club. Dolls played there. All these other bands like the Harlots of 42nd Street, mm-hmm. the Brats, um, Sniper, which is the band that Joe Ramone was in. That's where I first met Joe Ramone. It was mm-hmm. at the Coventry. In his glam days. In his glam days, yes, believe it or not. <laughs> Joe Ramone, six foot six, would wear platforms, satin pants. It feels uh, like a frightening <laughs> image to me. It was, I mean, I really felt sorry for him because he looked sure. like the guy that got beat up because, he looked like the guy that got beat up because he was the guy right. that got beat up. Right. Uh, I assume you were not the guy who got beat up. No, I wasn't. I was, yeah. you know, I was, I was, I was an athlete. I was, yeah. I played basketball every day. Okay. I was a kid. See, I also love this idea, and maybe you can speak to this, that you could go to Queens and see like amazing bands play. You could right. go to Brooklyn. Like the outer boroughs really had like a distinctive. Um, voice. there weren't, there weren't that many places to play, but Queens was where rock and roll like, came from. Bands would play Queens and they'd play it like. There was only, there was a place to play. It's only yeah. Coventry. Just Coventry. But let me tell you this. North Queens is where the rock and roll that we know mm-hmm. was born. Because I went to – I grew up in Jackson Heights. I went to elementary school with Johnny Thunders. Mm-hmm. I moved out of the neighborhood. Is he a good student? Uh, no. <laughs> he, was, he, he played baseball. He right. played sports when you were a kid. Right. I moved, I moved out after sixth grade, and Johnny went to – uh, junior high school, 145, uh, which is really rock and roll high school. So he went there, and uh, Gene Simmons went there also, and Sylvain went there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I moved. To, I went to Flushing High School, which mm-hmm. is maybe uh, – and, and Gene and uh, Johnny both went to Newtown uh-huh. High School, even though Johnny then he went to this other this school for if you couldn't – Get along with other kids, Quintanos. I right. It was a school. If you couldn't get along with other kids in your high school, they sent you to this other sure. school in Manhattan. I went to Flushing High School, which was maybe three, four miles down Northern Boulevard in Queens. And uh, the Fleshstones went to my high school. Uh, this guy played with uh, uh, Joan Jett. This guy, Ricky Bird, went there. And mm-hmm. uh, this guy who played with uh, Pat Benatar went there. A few miles away, a little further south, maybe three miles south, was Forest Hills High School. 
at Forest Hill High School is where the Ramones went. Uh, Leslie West. From Mountain. <laughs> nice. From Mountain. Uh, Randy California uh-huh. from Spirit. Yeah. <laughs> Fred Smith from Television. Wow. Waddy Wachtel. You know Waddy oh, Wachtel? Oh, yeah, he's a great uh, guitarist. He played, played with, with uh, Linda Ronstadt and, Zivon, and Keith yeah. Richards and Warren Zevon, session player in L.A. Um, uh, uh, who's the guy who wrote all the Darren Warwick songs? Bert. Andrew Gold? No, 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 no. no. I would have that when you pulled that one out. You know, I'm an old man. I forget these things. Uh, sure. Anyway. It's a lot of people at one high school. Yeah. Flush, Forest Hills High School. Yeah. What uh, What was right. it? Why was that the epicenter? Like, what? I think it's a lot of middle class Jews, you right. know, and you're, 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 you get that Audi element, right. I think. No, I, I grew up on Long Island, and, uh, you know, my dad worked in the city. I mean, growing up in Queen, like, were you. Would you consider yourself kind of a, a, a city kid? Were you guys hanging out in in Manhattan, or was it really kind of a, a, a more of an isolated thing? Where like you you were a Queens you like boy, the, the Greenpoint Polish residents who never leave the parking lot. No, no. Um, I would say most people didn't leave the neighborhood, but I went to Manhattan all the time. I right. go to the Village buy records. I was always buying records, going to concerts. Um, but uh, it was a trip to get yeah. to Queens. I had to take a bus. To the subway, and then like an hour, a forty-five minute subway into Manhattan. Yeah. Did you ever question the kind of adventurousness of that at that time? Because like these are a lot of bold moves. Like, like honestly, like in my brain, like at that point to be like into rock and roll and into rock and roll enough that you're starting a band and into obscure and into obscure rock and roll, not just kind of you know like 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 you said, getting into like knowing the MC Five, knowing like the bands that are harder to find. Uh, at that time, even, uh, and going, you know, go, venturing outside of your home, uh, like what, again, was it, was it the same attitude that you didn't question? Of course we got a record deal. You were just kind of like, no, this is what I do. I don't know. Whatever. It's just what I was interested in. Yeah. You know, um, I just liked different music than everybody else in my, in my neighborhood. Right. <laughs> right. And actually that was the tie that, that sort of, you know, uh, particularly me and Scott from mm-hmm. Dictators, you know, we particularly had, bonded over our musical tastes right we're both serious record collectors right and we go record shopping you know what do you do on a saturday go look for records yeah but then in those days i would buy there were some stores where record uh rock critics would sell their records to the record you know this records they didn't mm-hmm. want sell the records to the records i would buy them for like a buck or two bucks so I'd come home with a stack of records and spend like 25 bucks. Sure. The dream pile. And meanwhile, I'm buying like, you know, this is when you could buy a King's record was a cutout. Right. Mm-hmm. I still have my Bobby full of four record. The first record yeah. was 49 cent sticker. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. And actually, that's, that's why I started the magazine. I was talking about my magazine, Teen right. Wasting Gazette. I started it because I wanted to get free records. So <laughs> I sent, I sent, uh, letters to every record company. Right. Hey, I got a magazine. Please put me on your mailing list. I'm still living with my parents, and uh-huh. every day I go to the front, go to the mailbox, and there's a stack of records there. That's amazing. Which was every record in the early seventies I got. That's. Oh, wait, I just <laughs> want to do a dream come true. Before we leave Queens for a second, wasn't there a big, like, uh, almost a stadium in Forest Hills at some point? There's a tennis stadium a there. Ten- yeah. yeah. Yeah, there were some concerts there. Yeah. And there's some concerts in uh, the Singer Bowl, which is mm-hmm. off of when they do they do tennis there also now. Off of uh, Roosevelt Avenue, and I noticed on your website you have that fascinating rock and roll museum oh, yeah. page that we'll, we'll put a link to. But you ha- you put up these programs right. from I think like seventy one, seventy two, seventy three of these summer concerts. That was in Central Park. That was in Central. Okay. Schaefer, yeah. I have a lot more stuff. I, it's 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 a, it's a you know. I have a lot more stuff. But those were right for the yeah. listener. We'll uh, we'll put a link up. For yeah, them, I think if you're into rock and roll, I think I, people would probably dig seeing what I what I got up there. So you were always a collector, and do you continue to ki- still just now that we're just well, on this little tangent? To be honest, I, I collect. I was a big collector, mm-hmm. and uh, about ten years ago, my brother died. He had mm-hmm. a heart attack while mm-hmm. he was mountain biking, and I had to go empty out his house. And since then, I, 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 I what am I collecting for? You know, right. Right, it's sort of lost. It's it's a lure. Sure, uh, but you also do wine. Uh, so which which I, I've always talked about with our friend Justin Cherno. Right, uh, he you know he he does a lot of he 
delves in wine. Like that's his business is wine. But he would always talk about how it's it, in his brain. It was the same thing. Uh, it's a, kind of the same mentality as record collecting uh, and collecting. It's because like the, these people are looking for certain vintages and certain you know and like can talk about it forever. Uh, collectors and it, items. Yeah, they're collectors items. It ends up in the kind of same mentality, it's but it's different similar. world. It's very similar because now. Every neighborhood has a wine store. Right. And every neighborhood's wine store has a wine geek in it. Right. Which is like the record geek. They used yeah. to work in a record store. So you're going there, what's, what's good? And, and they'll point you to the, to the wine they like. So. Cause even like say, Uva, even the way they set up Uva, Uva the, the wine like, store that Justin Chan works at, you know, with the little descriptions on each, it, they feel like as a non-drinker, I'll look and be like, oh, it's like you're describing like, here is the seventies proto metal records, like but with you know, a dry cabernet. Did that it, just as a little tangent? Did the interest in wine happen later on, or was that? Oh, uh, the interest in wine happened because, well, I was always into food. My parents mm-hmm. were very adventurous with food. We used to always go to some. When I was a kid, they'd go to Indonesian restaurants, and when Sichuan food first came to New York, uh, my mother was always cooking weird things, and mm-hmm. she was the first. Girl, woman in the neighborhood to serve hummus and yogurt and all these things healthy. <laughs> you know, my mother, my mother used to give me carrots for a snack. We didn't have any, we didn't have any like chips or cookies or right. that kind of stuff. But when I was uh, on tour in Europe, I had an interest in wine. So in food, so I used to bring carry a little wine book to learn what kind of wine they put on the table when they, when I we were getting our meal, mm-hmm. and uh, that led to me. That led to the interest, visiting countries, I started visiting vineyards, I started taking a course in wine, um, started taking part-time jobs. Then for a while, I, for about four or five years, I worked full-time with this guy, Jean-Luc Ledoux, mm-hmm. who was a, he, he won the James Beard Award for Best Sommelier. Oh. And I really got an amazing education working with him. Right. And my connection with him, because he was a real rock, he's a French guy, mm-hmm. he was into weird rock and roll. So we bonded on that and wine. He had me work for him. It was a Fantastic opportunity. But I got into wine through rock and roll. And there are a bunch of people in the, the wine business who used to be in the music business. Yeah, definitely. Uh, getting back to when the, when the dictators first started and you're, and you're putting together, uh, you know, there's, there's an image for the band. And it seemed like almost uh, simultaneously also happening in Queens, the guys in Kiss are, doing, are putting together their own kind of variation on partying and having a good time right. was there any um crossover there in terms of uh it seems like it would make a good pairing for you did you guys want ever wind up playing with them or was there any kind of interaction well they used to play the coventry mm-hmm. we used to play and the dolls used to play and actually they were pretty good uh and they got signed and they went on tour for about two years and they came back to new york uh, right before the, the Kiss Alive record came out, mm-hmm. they put out those three rec- first three. Yeah. Are you familiar with Kiss? Yeah, record? yeah. So the first three records came out within like a year and a half. Right. One came out after another, and they were constantly on the road. They came back to New York to play the Beacon Theater, and it was really one of the best concerts I ever saw in my life. It, it was Kiss Alive mm-hmm. before that record came out, um, and then we did tour with Kiss actually in uh, when they were huge stadiums around the time of. Uh, uh, I don't know which record it was. They they were, but they were eighteen thousand seat kind of places. Wow. You know, we'd be opening up to be us, Cheap Trick and mm. Kiss. Wow! For a tour, we did about I don't know eight or ten shows with them. So I'm assuming that there 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 are no worse gigs there. That sounds like a, a great matched. Well, lineup. I wouldn't say uh, it was great, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it was a good experience. Right. So, well, you you had mentioned Rush. there were a lot uh, worse gigs than that, yeah. Right. Well, why don't you give, give us another one? Okay. Well, I know you're into. Uh, Prog rock. Yes, I am. Again, right before this is right. We had already made a record. We've done maybe ten gigs, and we get a gig uh, opening up for Rush mm-hmm. at Alex Cooley's Electric Ballroom in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Four shows, four nights. Got it through two nights, and they kicked us off for the <laughs> two nights. What? And they say go home. Right. And we drove down there like in a van, you know, in a right. cars or something. I don't know what it was. But it was <laughs> But we, we didn't make it through the four nights. Did they object to you guys musically or they just... I think they object to us in every possible way, <laughs> personality-wise. Because, we, you know, we were just wise guys, obnoxious. Right. And, uh, you know, everything was a joke and everything was sarcastic. And our music was 
the <laughs> exact opposite of what Rush was. So you were such big dicks to Rush, <laughs> essentially, that they were like, "Yeah, we could just not deal with this." Well, I think you know we weren't getting my memories. We weren't going getting across to the audience, so right? We would be sarcastic and right, you know be wise guys right to the audience so and was it the same uh at, at those shows as like you know i feel like if i go to a, a big concert now like one of those bigger ones uh people going to those hate watching openers like despite like in well, almost a part where like, why do they do that why do we, we even have openers anymore besides just background music for people to walk into the show uh was it the same like at on those type of tours I would say that in those days, people wanted to see the opener. Mm-hmm. Of course, this is a long time ago. Right. This is the, uh, the dark ages. Uh-huh. Uh, people wanted to see the opener, but we couldn't play our instruments. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we were totally obnoxious. You had fooled the record label. Wait, at what point did, were you, did you start, uh, were you able to start playing the instrument? How long did it take? Uh... By the second record, were you guys... Yeah, well, well this is, that's another story. We tried, you know... You know, after our first record came out, we got dropped by Epic Records. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, CBGBs started to happen, literally months after we got dropped. So all of a sudden, there's a place for people who liked our kind of music to go play. And there, we had the Ramones, who used to come see, Dick, who used to see us play all the time. And, you know, we were wearing leather jackets. They started wearing leather jackets. Mm-hmm. We did California Sun. They did California Sun. We had a song. <laughs> we had a song where we go... Let's go. <laughs> Master Race Rock. The end of the song is, you know, the, 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 the last quarter of the song. Let's go. Let's go. And they did Hey Ho, Let's Go. Right. Um, so there was a camaraderie. All of a sudden, there was a place we could play, and people were ready to see us play. And the CBGBs was a magical time, you know. Right. You know, um, my contemporaries in 77, 78, 76, 77, 78 were – you know, Ramones, Television, Talking mm-hmm. Heads, Blondie. Mink DeVille was a great band. Yeah. Johnny Thunders, Heartbreakers were a great band. So uh, it was a really magical time. Right. Again, the audience wasn't that big in those days. For those those kind of classic, you know, CB, I, yeah. I think in people's brains, you know, there's always the kind of. There's the, that classic that everybody was there, but yeah, the everyone, yeah. was. Uh, but like, was it like just. People kind of into it. No, people were very into it. Okay, but CBGBs, it was a they moved the stage back uh-huh. at one point, so it was smaller club. Maybe you get a hundred, hundred fifty people, and then maybe, and you would. But this is the great thing about it, actually was you would do Thursday, Friday, Saturday, mm-hmm. two sets a night, one opener. So we just switch. So uh, you would play six shows in a weekend, and it was one way to get tight and. Get, get Let me ask, when did that disappear? Like when when our bands were touring, like there was no like you don't you only played one show. You you played right. one set a night. The you got one set plus you got set. five bands on a bill. Right. Yes. That, right. <laughs> yeah, you guys yeah. didn't come up in the good era. We, yeah, <laughs> that, that, that's definitely true. Well, let me. I, can you speak to getting dropped by Epic at that yeah. time? Whatever that was, seventy six or so. Uh, that was uh, actually seventy five. Okay. Well, when you get dropped, how do you react to that? And then getting picked up by what, Electra? Electra, yeah. Yes. And, so how does how does how does that happen? Well, I actually um, I didn't handle it very well, to be honest. I was <laughs> I was young. Sure. I had written the songs. I had high hopes. Mm-hmm. Did you think that there wasn't going to be an opportunity after that, or was it kind of like um, did, did the confidence I'd disappear? Say, I, well, I say the yeah. I would say honestly. I quit, you know, the band. I sort of quit the band for a while. Right. And um, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I, I got a job at a music store. And uh, actually, the band the band got a replacement, uh, Mark Mendoza, who eventually joined Twisted Sister. Okay, yeah. And I came back. And they, they all of a sudden, CBG was there. There were gigs. There was an audience. They said, come on, we'll rejoin the band. Because I wrote all the songs. Right. They needed me. <laughs> right. Um, I came so back. Uh-oh. I was playing keyboards. But you have no label at this point. It, we didn't have a label. Mm-hmm. But we had gigs. Yeah. And we we'd go to California, San Francisco. Um, uh, and then we eventually we got signed in probably late 76, early 77. Uh, was, that, was that based on... 
How did the, how did the electric? Well, everybody was getting signed. You know, yeah. any band that could really kind of play in that era, even though there wasn't an audience, nobody was really selling records. Even Blondie wasn't selling records on their first record. They they right. were successful in Australia. Was and this Europe. was this because of uh, the CBGBs kind of like vi- like the, like almost like you know like it, it, there's always cycles. There was the Brooklyn thing and then Seattle, whatever it is. Right. Like was it was it kind of post that like of just like oh maybe we should kind of get all these bands, which just happened to be a lot of great bands. There were a lot of great bands, mm-hmm. and the music business was way way smaller. Right, and the people who worked at ADR were a little hipper mm-hmm. and knew there was something there was good music here. Um, I would say it was trendy mm-hmm. in a way that every rec company wanted to sign one of these bands. Right. Uh, but uh, nobody really sold records until later on. Right. Even Talking Heads, you know, maybe it was their second or third record when they... Right. But in those days, you got you got three records. Sure. You know? Usually, except for Dictators on our <laughs> on our deal with Epic. <laughs> they dropped us in like five months. Well, just I want to talk about the thing that always resonated with me about the first Dictators record was beyond the kind of proto-punk uh, aspects of the music or even the attitude was this sort of like loving nostalgia for like burgers, cars, hanging out, like McDonald's. It wasn't nostalgia. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about because also around this time, I mean, you guys are growing up uh, on the music of like, you know, on doo-wop and like music of the 60s. And then by the time you get old enough to really start making your own music. And also, wasn't there kind of a 50s resurgence happening in the early Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't influenced by the 50s. I wasn't, mm-hmm. and I was the music. I was uh, Beatles, mm-hmm. Kinks, who, who, who made your influence on me at the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And garage rock, you know that, you know the record Nuggets that yeah, Lee sure. K put together. Yeah. yeah, I'd say the biggest influence on the first who on the first Dictators record was the Who and Nuggets. Yeah, mm-hmm. those are the records I was listening to at that time. But the, the difference between the Who would never write a song about like McDonald's. Or well, <laughs> that's 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 my only that's that's my original. That's where I right. influence things. Yeah, I when think it came I, to punk rock, the Ramones, the sound of the Ramones. Mm-hmm. They define what punk rock was, mm-hmm. but I think my lyrics sort of define the attitude, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, of punk rock. Yeah, the music was okay, you know, but it was you know the useful chord changes. But the Ramones, that downstrokey thing, right. you know, every band in England copied that, and every band, in, you know, a lot of bands all around the world copied it, and it really made it so. I can do that, sure. <laughs> yeah. So every ba- you know, it was like everybody picked up a guitar and formed the band. So. As, as I guess, like, the 80s start to happen, and I, I don't know, did the Dictators actually break up for a while after? Well, we broke up, yeah. We, we, after we got dropped by uh, Elektra in 78, right before we were supposed to go on tour with ACDC in Europe. Hmm. Uh, was that Bon Scott was still alive? Bon then? Scott, yeah. Uh, matter of fact, ACDC's first show in New York City was opening up for Dictators. Really? Wow. Yeah. Where was that at? That was at the Palladium on wow. 14th Street. How was that? It was great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we had, we, well, we had played with them. <laughs> it was fucking ACDC. What do you want? <laughs> they weren't popular at the time in right. New York. They right. were popular in the Midwest. So we'd opened up for them in like Ohio. Uh huh. And they were astounding. Right. This is around the Power Age and, uh, sure. uh, great records. Uh, and, uh, they never played in New York. So they opened up for us in New York City. Wow. Give, a, give us a, another, like, another classic. Worst gig, kind of from the end of that first incarnation of the dictator. Okay, 1977, fall of 77. All the New York bands were going to England to play with all the British bands. So the Dead Boys were on tour with The Damned. Mm-hmm. Richard Hell was on tour with either Elvis Costello or The Clash, I can't remember. All at the same time. Punk rock is huge in England, and the Dictators are on tour with the Stranglers. The mm-hmm. Stranglers are the biggest of all the bands. We played five nights at the Roundhouse mm-hmm. in London. So I got to meet everybody. Met like Lemmy, was just forming Motorhead, <laughs> met him. Got to meet, you know, all the guys in the Clash, uh, Sex Pistols, all these guys. So we opened up for the Stranglers through England. Then we went to Europe to open up our own 
tour of mm-hmm. like Paris and Amsterdam. So we just played the Paradiso in in Amsterdam, which is still going, I think. And we have a gig the next night in Berlin. Mm-hmm. This is a long drive. Yeah. So right from the gig into the van, start driving to to Berlin. Did you guys drive yourself at this? Time? No, we we had a crew. Had we had a crew. Yeah. Yeah. Still uh, a long drive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, long drive. Yes. So uh, we're driving. I was in the back of the van asleep because I like to sleep. It was quieter. In the front, people are talking. Mm-hmm. If you wanted to sleep, I just laid in the last couch, last seat there. And when you're when driving, you're, it's easy to sleep when the cars move. When the when the when the van slows down, right? You wake up. Oh, what's going on here? Right. So the van slowed like down. Like a baby being rocked, and all of a sudden, <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. Pick my head up, look out the window. I see. Oh, there's there's a, a police roadblock here. Okay, put my head back down. <laughs> All of a sudden, I hear like screaming and yelling in German. Pick up my head, and there's a guy with a machine gun <laughs> pointing at the window. This is uh, 1977. This is right after World, 20 years after World War II. Right. We're a bunch of wise guy New York Jews <laughs> right. in Germany. Smart ass <laughs> in Germany, uh, and a guy. People are screaming at us in German with machine guns. I look. I, I can hear a put 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 put. There were helicopters following right. the van. <laughs> they start screaming at us, get out of the van, and they I'm the last one out. The van doors are open. I see everybody lined up in like a ditch with their arms up in the air. One guy had a dictator's jacket on. I, I, I still remember actually that guy was Eric who uh who started the uh entourage. He, they based the character E oh. on him. He works with Marky Mark. So. <laughs> so anyway, I'm out of the van. And we're standing there. And what happened was they, we fit the description of the Beider-Meinhof gang, yeah. which right. was, you know, okay, yeah. okay, you know, really. Yeah. I don't really know about them. But they were like the terrorist organization yeah. uh, based out of Germany. But we had, we fit this, we had long we hair, had we had Dutch money, them. we had stopped for gas, and the gas station attendant had called up oh. the police. So oh. they were following us with helicopters <laughs> until they set up the roadblock, pulled us all over. So, uh, not the worst gig, but the worst no, gig bad. I missed. Yeah, the show never happened. You guys, show you never guys happened. were detained. <laughs> How long were you detained for? Uh, a while. They went through yeah. all our equipment. Yeah. They realized pretty early on. That we weren't by the mind off because sure. we were Americans, and they found some hash and stuff uh-huh. like that. Uh, but once they, you send the helicopters out, you got to kind of really they had go to follow through. The through. Motion. You can't, you know, <laughs> yeah. it doesn't look good to the big exactly. boss. Yeah. It's expensive those helicopters. I'm sure. <laughs> so we missed a gig. Uh, they called the promoter and they confirmed everything. And uh huh. But it was pretty, pretty scary, you know. Actually. Yeah, and that was also at a time where it wasn't like you know, it's twenty, it's however, however long after World War, it's still kind of picking itself up, like you know, yeah. World War Two is still in people's memory. You weren't vacationing in Germany. Anti-Semitism was not a distant memory, right? Yeah. Well, I guess it still isn't. But <laughs> <laughs> was that in your brain before you went over there, or like at that time? Actually, it wasn't. Was, actually, yeah. wasn't. I was never concerned. I mean, I I used German, you know, imagery. You know, mm-hmm. master race rock and stuff sure. like that. Having a band called the Dictators. Right. Was there ever an issue? Like, you know, I know in New York, starting in the early '80s, when you know bands like the Cro-Mags kind of came up, and then there was an issue with you'd have like skinheads at shows at mm-hmm. times. Was did that ever? You ever crossed paths with that? No, skinheads came after we, we had sort of stopped playing. Okay, and we 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 did shows in the eighties, but there were one offs here and there. So right. so so, what are you doing for the most part in the nineteen before Manitoba's Wild Kingdom? I was um, I was just I said I said wow I fucked up the music business I lost you know I'm a loser. Uh, we know that story uh, too well. Uh-oh. Yeah. We've had the That's same stuff. I can't make any music yes. business. I'll, uh, I would do a few things, play right. around a few people, but I was working a job. Right. Oh, I have another, I have another worst gig story. Oh, do, yeah? do tell. At this point, I had a job 
basically the AV squad uh-huh. for presentations in a hotel. So people would give uh, lectures. They have they have a, a video screen. It's a PAs and mm-hmm. slides, whatever. My job was setting this up. So actually, this is my worst gig ever. <laughs> <laughs> it was a doctor's. Uh, we're giving a presentation for how to put in a penis implant. <laughs> so I set up the video thing and the screen, and it's a it's a videotape of an operation with a penis. A guy takes a knife, cuts open the penis, <laughs> puts in the implant. It, I had to leave the room. So that's the worst. And you're the AV guy. I'm, I'm, yeah. I pay the bills. (laughs) That was the worst, one of the worst gigs. Yes, that's terrible. That, that's amazing. So, so when you do this, this one off, uh, Manitoba's Wild Kingdom record, late 80s, early 90s, now there's like, uh, like a metal influence going on and, and you have, you know, the Beastie Boys have already happened. Um, has Ross the boss? Is he in Manowar at this point? What's what's Ross the boss was in Manowar, but he mm-hmm. qu- he quit, got kicked out right before Wild Kingdom. Right. So we got him into Wild Kingdom, which is basically the dictators. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because I have it on my brain, did he take it seriously, Manowar, at that time, or was he just like having fun? <laughs> you know, for the listener, let's like just if if, if someone doesn't know who Manowar, Manowar are the self the loudest band, in yeah, the, world. the loudest band in the world by Dennis. They they are they they're they're the whole thing is about every metal band except for Manowar is false yes. metal except for Black Sabbath yes. probably Black Sabbath Black and Manowar or real metal every other band is false Death's metal. A false like metal. If Conan the Barbarian formed a band, exactly. Well, they probably both if Robert E. Howard had to write a storyline for a metal were, band, but they were not. Okay, because I always thought they were European. But no. did Ross the Boss form Manowar? Yes. He, okay, so that's... No, because they're from Queens, right? Of course. No, no. Or upstate. From, Joey DeMeo. Amherst, New York. Upstate. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no. They were... Uh, jo- Joey DeMeo was a roadie for... You know, that's Joey what DeMeo <laughs> was working with this guy who did... Uh, who worked with Black Sabbath. Right. And Ross was playing this, this French band that opened up for them and they met. And Ross is a fantastic guitar player. Yeah. And Joey is a really great bass player. Yeah, well, he plays style. this crazy piccolo bass, which is he plays, insane yeah, he doesn't, that, doesn't play the bass. He doesn't play like Duck Dunn, right? You know? <laughs> yeah, he does. <laughs> the last but, time he does the whole pulling each string off. Uh, yeah. Manowar does a thing where it, it, there's always a part where he plays his bass solo and then he pulls, pulls each string off and then drinks a beer the Manowar way. Right. Uh, I think Joey's uh, big thing is he plays Flight of the Bumblebee. Yes. On yes. the base. Yes. <laughs> so, right. base. That's very it's, it's sort of like, um, you know, like Lawrence Welk used to have somebody <laughs> yeah. playing uh, exactly. the accordion Flight of the Mumbley or something. <laughs> exactly. but, so what was going on at the time when, when you know, it's now late 80s, early 90s for for this like kind of uh, iteration of of the band in, in this Wild Kingdom Okay, stage. The, the 80s was a lot of like new romantic, puffy hair. Mm-hmm. Stuff that I, you know, I, what's, I can't get, I can't right. get, I can't get behind this. <laughs> and then Slayer, Anthrax, Metallica, right. Megadeth come out. And I go, yeah, punk rock, metal combined. I can get behind this. Right. So I wrote some songs, some in that style and some in more of a dictator's kind of backbeat style. Mm-hmm. And we got a deal with MCA. Uh, and we made a record that was actually the most successful record <laughs> of my life because we had, we were on MTV right. and we were on the radio and um, I had a song called The Party Starts Now that was in movies. Mm-hmm. So oh, I uh, should say I was watching that video earlier today featuring a young Camille Grammer. That's true. Ex, ex uh, of uh, Kelsey Grammer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, in and, the video. Camille Grammer. The yeah. She was yeah. the a young, a young Camille Grammer. Yes. yes. So actually, my only mainstream success was right. on that record, and you could totally hear it. How it could, it could totally yeah. be, yeah. be a huge. Actually, um, I produced it, but I mixed it with this guy Andy Wallace, who about six yeah. months later uh, mixed uh, Nirvana. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, that was the end of metal, as we know. <laughs> right. end of hair metal, as yeah. we know. Yes. It. 
Did so, and what was there a tour behind that? Right? I mean, how how serious? Was nah, that we never got. We didn't a few shows. Never really got to tour. What happened was we had a, a guy who was the vice president of promotion at the rec company, really behind the record, starting to come up the charts. He gets fired, and the new guy comes in. He says, no, I'm going to do things my way. And that's a story that's been told a million times. Classic. Mm-hmm. Classic, you know. Yeah. Um, but actually, at that time, I was starting to become getting work as a record producer. Right. So I was getting other work. So I wasn't... Um, you weren't sweating it that much. Yeah, I wasn't sweating it as much, right? Yeah. How did how did you get involved with uh, starting to to produce bands and work with bands? I just I was always interested in it, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, I got work, you know. I got a little work. When in you there. were doing like Dictators Records and like the Manto, not early, like, not were the you early doing dictator. anything? Like, would you be the person? Would you be the guy in the band who was sitting with the engineer yeah, yeah. and being like, yeah. "Oh, what are you doing there? What did? You do? What about this? So right. you put the mics there." Right. Uh, but I was always written, that guy. Yeah, I had written the songs, right. so I was always. You know, one of the things on the first two in particular to get record, my vision mm-hmm. of what the song should have sounded like right. wasn't fulfilled. Right. So I was thinking, how do I, I don't know, what's, what's wrong? Why didn't my, the vision I had in my head, the sound in my head end up on the record? So sure. I was curious about that. Um, From the very beginning though, too, it sounds like that vision. Yeah. Well, I didn't know, there. but when you're, when you're, when you're 20 years old and you're first time in the studio, right. You know, um, you, you just go along with what's, what people do. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. You, know. you, you assume, no, oh, they must know what they're doing more than we do. Uh, and then sometimes they don't, especially if you're playing, uh, uh music that's a little different, like in, in different than what they're used to, especially if you, you just kind of gone into whatever studio you went into. It's like, Oh, well, no, we don't. Is that how your vocals are supposed to sound? Okay, cool. You know, is that how your guitar is? Like that distorted? All right, fine. Yeah, I'm, and also we weren't. I mean, if you want to make a good sounding record, you have to have good musicians. We weren't right. good musicians. I can't blame everything on the producer. Sure, we were very young and inexperienced as musicians. Right, we didn't know how to, you know, lock in the bass and drums and lock right. in, and you know, another thing about making good sounding record is sparseness. Yeah, you know, the less you play, the bigger it will sound. Sure. So I, let's fast forward to to kind of the stuff that you're doing now, and and one of we basically balance the podcast by talking with uh, musicians, and then we talk to comics because uh, we we have the shared experiences of all playing these worst shows. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to ask you about your take on humor and comedy in music, because a lot of the the, the songs that you're working on now in these videos that you have have a very biting kind of satirical sense mm-hmm. to them, which is seems almost more overt if you could be more overt than the dictators were mm-hmm. with like what fuck christmas you know, <laughs> like, where you're, what, what do you how like what what how do you feel about the role of of humor in especially like kind of heavier underground punk metal music right. well i've always been into comedy and when i was a kid i liked andy kaufman i saw andy kaufman play carnegie hall like albert brooks that kind of thing is I actually hate stand-up comedians. I don't know. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> it always makes me uncomfortable. But I like, like, I like a situation. Somebody can create a situation uh, where you don't have to tell a joke. This situation is funny. That's why I like Larry David, right? You know. So uh, I was always the humor. Mm-hmm. It's obvious on the first Dictator record and all the Dictators. The whole thread was there was always a tongue-in-cheek element to it, right? But now that I'm uh, solo. I can do things as I want, mm-hmm. and uh, I love making videos, and uh, it's now easy to make a video. You get a guy with a camera and a computer, you can Very make a video cheap. for really cheap, and uh, people are willing to help you out for, for you know. You have a very funny video featuring uh, with Dave Hill, who yeah, is also a friend of the guest, show. Friend of the show, and Dave uh, Hill's Carla great. Rhodes. And Carla's in Carla Rhodes. Show. Uh, also in that video was uh, Travis and Jonathan. I don't know if you know them. Uh, this, hey, this Actually, one's going out to Travis and John. <laughs> <laughs> this one's for you guys. <laughs> Very funny guys. As a matter of fact, they sort of, they did a video, which was uh, Rick Rubin producing uh, 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 Stevens, what's his name? Who did The Streak? What's that song? Oh, uh, Ray, Ray Stevens. Ray Stevens. Ray yeah. Stevens. Oh, they did like a sketch. Video. They did a funny little video. Uh-huh. And I saw that and I said, wow, uh, these guys are funny and they know rock and roll. Right. So let me get him into my video, and and Carla knew them. She turned me on to them, mm-hmm. uh, and so I, Dave Hill is another guy who knows music and knows yeah. comedy. So 
for my video, uh, which is called Let's Get the Band Back Together, yeah. which is sort of a spinal tap take on, you know, a band that was a hair metal band <laughs> in the 80s oh. getting together in 2013. Right. Um, and people bawled and, you know. All the trappings. <laughs> of, yes. All the trappings. It's always it's a disaster. I, I think the idea of bands getting back together is kind of funny. Sure. Uh, Definitely. If you're not successful or successful, I mean, right before I did that video, I saw Bachman Turner Overdrive on on PBS. BTO, a reunited BTO. Reunited BTO. Oh, yes. and, uh, They're still I, taking care of business. You know, I, those are great songs, but, right. yeah. you know, these uh, these 70 year old guys playing it, it was a little sad to me and funny. Right. Well, uh, wait, what about the uh, when the dictators, when you guys put out a record in 2001? Yeah. That, I, did you look at that differently than, um, you know, the band never really kind of broke up? This is well, a little different because we had been playing all along. And about 1995, this promoter had from Spain, so it was the CBGBs. And so we, we did a tour of Spain. It was successful. Next year, come back. And, uh, uh, <clears throat> a guy in Sweden said, you're going to be in Spain. Come to Sweden. So we, we, we were starting to get a lot of shows. Mm-hmm. So I started, I wrote some, so I don't like returning without a new record. Right. I think I'll never be as an oldies man. I sure. think that's embarrassing if you think of yourself as a creative artist. Right. Should always be putting out, and you know, the Stones don't tour without a new record. For something you two. Yeah. The great Shame bands. On your BTO. Shame on your BTO. Well, on then you're just doing well, the, the state <laughs> fair no, route. That's, you know? well, yeah. I'm not a band that's going right. to, I would never do with the state fair route. And the bands I respect are the bands that always tour on new records. Right. Maybe they're touring a little, you know, they're a little long in the tooth when they tour. Sure. <laughs> but we had, we had been, we, we were playing from 95 through 2001, and I was working on this record, writing songs and trying to, we didn't have a rec company. Let me so ask we were you, raising the money to do it ourselves, so. About that, was was there, um, did you guys feel, and you know, in, what it was it 94, whatever, when Green Day kind right. of, there was like this punk explosion and of, of kind the of poppies yeah. yeah more yeah. you know with green day and the punk. offspring exactly um did you find was there i'm assuming there's always kind of a new generation of fans but 1995 seems to kind of be right in that wheelhouse of like a, a rediscovery of a mm-hmm. lot of exactly punk that's what happened um let please kill me the book came out yep uh green day came out offspring of some punk became my music became trendy again mm-hmm. the cycle Right. Came around. So there was a market for the dictators again. Right. And Which is always, I mean, that's one of the pluses of music. I mean, great art, but music especially. Like, it like it comes back around. It like, does. Like, like, like it fashion. Always, yeah, it does. Like Bill it's Bottoms a, come back. Yeah, it's a cyclical thing. Yeah. And, like, I did, th- like, eventually, like, you know, there's a, a great record in 1974, is still a great record. In probably the two, second BTO record. Probably the second BTO. That's what I've been talking about this whole time, <laughs> guys. Let's talk a little bit more about BTO. That was that was the big one for them. Also, I think it was, right. second, that was yeah. the one with yeah. uh, you ain't seen nothing yet. Right. Proto Primus, if they're ever Proto Primus. Um, so go, going back to the, like, the this new stuff you're doing, just can you briefly touch on the? Are you just kind of cranking out a song here, make a video for it? There's because the model has totally changed in terms of right. releasing music. You're talking about dictators or now? No, I'm talking about what your solo stuff. Now, is yeah, it just yeah. kind of you're doing it completely on your own terms? Yes. And I'll just I love it. I'll just do. A video. I love it. Yeah. Music business is great now. I love it. Yeah. You make a record. You, you can. I have a home studio. You're not right. beholden to. Anybody. I'm not beholden to anybody. I can do whatever I want. You the know. idea of DIY has actually become something real and, not and legitimate you, that literally everyone can do this. And not only is True. that you have your own home studio, but you can make it sound as good. Yeah. If you know what you're doing. Yeah. You don't need to clock studio time. You, know. you are a producer, so yeah. you, you know. I, I always out. say, I say punk rock one. Yeah. The whole idea of anybody can do it has come to fruition. Yeah. Look at that. I, I, we did it. Podcast, so, <laughs> I'm listening so, here. Yeah. As I'm, we're, um, to, to kind of bring bring this full circle here, um, a question that we ask all of our guests. Mm-hmm. What do you think of the word gig? Gig? Gig. What do I think of the meaning? I'm do, you, do you like the word gig? Do you use the word gig? We, we get Yeah, I use the word gig. Well, what's what's the, I don't know, the controversy. <laughs> uh, it, it, yeah. it depends. <laughs> it depends. Yeah, the thing with gig we've realized is... Uh, it depends on if we're asking comedians, 
if we're asking musicians and when they started playing music or actually more so what level they play music at uh punk but punk bands now end up using the word show more uh and then there's concert and then there's gig uh, uh, punk bands are not playing concerts. concerts. They're playing, <laughs> yes, exactly. they're playing clubs. <laughs> well, and that's the thing. If, if we've got, you know, people who are currently touring Europe in buses, they're playing concerts. Right. You know, uh, and those can be gigs. Yeah. Uh, but we end up just seeing a, a lot of differentiation. We find uh, that it's a very d- uh, divisive word. Yeah. And that's so I'm not sure uh, who, who doesn't like the word gig. The comedian or the uh... no comedians love it. Yeah, comedian. Yeah, because uh, it's a working thing. Hey, I got a yeah. gig tonight. I right. would say uh, anyone playing in uh, small clubs and the house show world definitely do not use the word a very gig underground. Now. Level. So they think that it's the they're meaning. above it. Yes, they're above. Or, or maybe, maybe well, they don't want to. They don't want to face reality. Is exactly. What you're yeah. Yeah, they want to think that it's something different. That's not a gig. Right. Yeah, but well, they're all just gig it anyways. <laughs> And it's all a gig, is what we're saying. <laughs> Life is a gig. Exactly. So I would be remiss if I didn't ask you briefly, I believe it's on the third Dictator's record, Bruce Springsteen. True. True. Was yes. in this, is, is counting off. On yes. The is, what's the story behind that? Um, we're recording at the record plant. He was in the studio next door. Was he doing The River at the time? Or, no, uh, he was doing uh, Darkness. Yeah. Um, I was actually dating his manager's uh, assistant. And we had this little spot where we needed a one, two, one, two, three, four. <laughs> so, um, who better? <laughs> so we had, hey, Bruce, you want to do it? He came in. We didn't credit him, you know, right? Just as a little thing for us to enjoy. Yeah, we were big Springsteen fans at the time. That's amazing. And um, yeah, it was great. Yeah, and I have a, actually I have a picture. Boss. <laughs> well, boss boss. Actually, another little thing is while we're I gave him a Dictator's T-shirt. Right. This is seventy. Seven, about seventy nine or eighty. I go to see him at the Palladium, uh, and he did he did uh, two sets. Right. Second set, he came out and wore a Dictator's T shirt. That's I, awesome. I have photos of that. Which That's is, fantastic. Yeah. That is amazing, uh, Andy. This has been phenomenal. Thank you. Uh, no, no, you've been phenomenal. No, you well, no, 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 it's no. You, you, Not it's me. all you, my friend. And, and <laughs> it, should, it should it should be mentioned. You know, you live in the neighborhood. I'm you're, you're close by, so even though you don't have a, a, a long walk, we want you to get home safe. Okay, I appreciate you guys. This was fun. Worst gig ever. 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 ever.